Jeremy, there we go. If you would turn in your Bibles to John 6, continuing our series through the Gospel of John, and we come to John 6, 22 through 48. John 6, 22 through 48. And let's just begin by reading this passage together. I think I originally said through 59, we're just going to stop at verse 48, because I didn't quite make it through all of that in my preparation, so... John uh, 6, beginning in verse 22, this is the word of the Lord. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. Most present-day Americans don't understand what it means to lack food. In our society, we have so much food, we distinguish between junk food and health food. 
between snack food and meal food. We restrict our kids from snacking too much lest they spoil their appetite for regular meals. Even our poorest have multiple ways to get free food with minimal effort. Because of this, it's difficult for us as average modern-day Americans to really appreciate that most people throughout history have been in a daily battle to get enough food to survive. Hunger was a daily reality. Starvation was a very real threat for most people throughout history, especially during your periodic famine that would come along or when the breadwinner of the house, the husband, died or was injured. Even today, many people throughout the world experience this same daily fight against hunger. And it was certainly true to one degree or another for the average person living in the first century, Palestine, to whom this gospel was originally written. Now, in this context, the idea of having a permanent, plentiful supply of food so that you would never go hungry again was incredibly attractive. It went a long way to guaranteeing your physical security in the face of one of life's most perpetual threats, hunger and starvation. And it's this background which brings John 6, 22 through 48 uh, to life for our modern ears and helps us understand the force of the message that Jesus was giving to the Jews in it. Now the chapter opens, you remember from last time, verses 1 through 15 with Jesus performing the fourth miraculous sign that's recorded in the gospel. He took five meager barley loaves and two fish and he multiplied them to feed a multitude of 5,000 men plus all their family members in a desolate place away on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And then that miracle echoed the way that God had fed the Israelites with bread from heaven when they were in the wilderness of Sinai after God delivered them out of Egypt at the Exodus. Now, recognizing that parallel, the multitudes who saw the miracle that Jesus did concluded that he must have been a prophet. He must be the prophet like Moses, whom Moses had said was coming in Deuteronomy 18. But then, of course, we know that that fifth miraculous sign Jesus performed for his disciples. In the next section, verses 16 through 21, where he walked on the sea later that night, showed that he was much greater than the crowds had really understood. And this morning, we pick up the story in verse 22, where we read an extended discourse between Jesus and the Jews who had eaten the loaves, which explains the significance of the miracle that he performed the day before. So having multiplied the loaves to sustain their physical life in the desert the day before, Jesus now explained how that miracle was actually intended to show them how he was able to satisfy a need which they had that was more profound and deep 
than just the hunger of their physical bodies. And this message of good news that he tells them in this text is equally pertinent to all of us today who are reading it as believers. So let's see what he had to say in this section of the story. Now remember, thousands of people from the cities and the towns around the Sea of Galilee had followed Jesus out into a desolate place near that city of Bethsaida on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. He had ministered to them all day. He'd fed them with a multiplied bread in the late afternoon. That evening, he had sent his disciples back across the sea in the boat that they had come in after dismissing the crowds. He himself uh, miraculously walked to his disciples on top of the sea that night. And as soon as he had climbed into the boat, the storm had ceased and they found themselves supernaturally transported to the waters just off the city of Capernaum where they had been headed. So presumably, after a very long, wonder-filled day and the night, which had left these disciples freshly awestruck about Jesus, the disciples finally docked their boat and they went to the place where they had been staying in Capernaum. What a day. Well, verses 22 through 24 tell us what happened with the crowds who had stayed the night in the desolate place across the sea. It tells us that when they woke up in the morning, they were confused about what had happened to Jesus. They knew that he hadn't been in the boat that uh, the disciples had taken uh, to go back across the sea. And they knew that there was no other boats that he could have taken. Yet when the sun comes up in the morning, he's gone. So they start looking for him. Either they walk back around the lake on foot or they go across in these boats that had come near that place from Tiberias and They all head to Capernaum because they know that's the place. It's a city on the northwest side of the lake. They knew that was the place where Jesus and his disciples had been staying. Verse 25 tells us, quote, they found him. And in fact, if you read on down later on in verse 59, you see that he had been, they found him teaching in a synagogue in the synagogue in Capernaum. In fact, if you go to Capernaum today, you can still see the ruins of that very synagogue. And they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So they're not aware of the miraculous events that had taken place on the sea the night before. And so they could not understand how he had gotten to Capernaum so quickly. And really, this begins to indicate to us that despite seeing him multiply the five loaves, The day before, these crowds still did not understand who Jesus really was. More than that, though, what we see is that they are misguided in their motivations for seeking him out. And Jesus knows their hearts and he answers their question about when he had gotten to Capernaum by just turning around and confronting them about why they were seeking him there. So we read in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, 
but because you ate your fill of the loaves. It's not simply that they liked the bread that he had given them and they wanted more. It's not quite that simple. It's a bit more complicated than that, I think. Remember, verses 14 and 15 tell us that they had concluded from that miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 that he was the prophet like Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18. And it says that they were intended to take him by force and make him their king. And the point Jesus is making here is that they wanted to do all that because they thought he could provide them with more bread, with ongoing material benefits by this supernatural power that he had demonstrated the day before. In other words, in response to his miracle, these crowds were now seeking Jesus for their own personal benefit because they saw him as a potential source of ongoing earthly blessings. I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, obviously, it's important to pause here, isn't it? And just note that these crowds aren't the only ones who would do this. It's been an ongoing tendency in every generation since then. Why? Because it's just the natural way of fallen human nature. Sin has made human beings selfish and idolatrous so that we, by nature, seek to satisfy our lusts with the things of this world rather than, as we were created to, seek to glorify God by satisfying our hearts in Him. This is what sin has done to us. And so today, as in that day, we see people seeking Jesus because they think that he might be able to give them the things that they want in this world. Now, of course, the crassest form of this is what's called the prosperity gospel, which teaches that Jesus has promised to make you physically healthy and wealthy in this life. But it has to be said that many, even evangelicals, while rejecting the sort of crassest form of the prosperity gospel, end up really teaching and believing a softer form of it. We see, for instance, churches marketing Jesus primarily in terms of his willingness and ability to meet their felt needs in this life. Success in work, peace in your marriage, compliant children, mental health, etc., I want to suggest that if Jesus confronted the Jews about seeking him for their own personal benefit and earthly gain, then I think it's safe to say he would do the same for us today, right? Indeed, Jesus called the Jews who were seeking him to a different motivation. And you see it there in verse 27. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, the average Jew in ancient Palestine worked to buy food for his family every day. And the staple food in that part of the world 
would have been bread and fish around the Sea of Galilee. So after Jesus multiplied the loaves to fill their bellies the day before, these Jews were hoping that he might become a perpetual source of bread to save them from having to work for it every day. That's why they were seeking him. But Jesus indicates here that they shouldn't be worrying so much about getting physical bread at all. Oh, it's true. They would have to work every day to get their daily bread. But this wasn't what was ultimately important, Jesus is saying. The physical bread that they worked for didn't last very long. But there was another type of food, another bread, which would last forever, which would not perish. And whereas physical bread would just temporarily sustain their bodily life, this other bread that he's pointing them to could give them eternal life, not just to their bodies, but to their souls. It's that bread which Jesus said they should be seeking, and he could give it to them as the Son of Man, which, by the way, was a a less provocative, a little bit more subtle way of referring to the Messiah, using the language of Daniel 7.14. Now, when Jesus told them to work for the food that endures to eternal life, he was, of course, speaking metaphorically, right? But it seems, as so often happens in the Gospel of John, that they didn't pick up on that, and so they took him literally. And so they say in verse 28, okay, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, by that phrase, doing the works of God, it seems that they're referring back to what Jesus had said, to work for the food that endures to eternal life. It's unclear that they understood what Jesus meant at this point by the food which endures to eternal life. It's possible, if not likely, I think, that they simply thought that he was referring to some kind of miraculous provision of physical bread which would last forever so that they wouldn't have to work anymore. Much like the Samaritan woman at the well understood Jesus to say that he could give her water so that she wouldn't have to go to that well and draw it out anymore. Whatever the case, they understood Jesus to be saying, using the language of work, that they needed to do something, do something to earn or at least to get this bread from God. What must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do to get this food which endures to eternal life. But Jesus cleared up the confusion in verse 29. He said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, this wasn't the type of bread that you could earn by working for it. Rather, it would be simply given to those who would believe in Jesus Presumably believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God. So you couldn't secure this bread through your own effort. You received it as a gift when you simply trusted in Jesus to give it to you. So faith, not works, Jesus said, was the means by which you had to receive this 
food from him which endures to eternal life. Now, I think it's safe to say that we are supposed to, even at this early stage in the discourse, to see a subtle confrontation here of that human instinct, the instinct of the flesh, to try and earn, or at least to try and work to get eternal life and and other blessings and favor from God through our works. Our fallen human nature, it seems, is hostile to the idea that we can do nothing to earn God's favor, his blessing, his salvation. Why are we hostile to it by nature? Well, because our nature is proud. And that strikes a blow at human pride. It implies we have nothing to offer God. But rather we depend entirely on his mercy, on his generosity, so that he will get all the glory instead of us. Paul put it in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The flesh doesn't like that. Such is the propensity of man's fallen nature that that truth offends us and we naturally resist it. Indeed, it's at this very point that we see that the Jews begin resisting Jesus in what he is saying. Because when he said that they must believe in him whom he has sent, they understood correctly that he was referring to himself as the one sent from God. In other words, he was claiming that they had to believe that he was sent from God and they had to trust him to give them this food which endures to eternal life. Now, the audacity of that claim, you see, just rubbed them the wrong way and And they demanded that he prove it in verses 30 through 31. There we read. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Probably a quotation from Psalm 78. Now, when you hear those words, doesn't it just make you stop and say, What? Are they serious? Jesus claims to be from God, able to give them living bread, and they say, what sign will you perform to prove it? Had they just forgotten that he multiplied the five loaves of bread to feed thousands of them the day before? What more did they need to see? But you think, I think this is helpful. This just goes to show that unbelief isn't based solely on reason, is it? We like to justify our unbelief by using rational arguments. But ultimately, unbelief is a moral issue. God has revealed the truth about himself to human beings in many and varied ways. He's revealed certain things about his nature in his creation. He's revealed certain truths about his moral character in our own conscience as his image bearers. He has revealed much more about himself, including his plan of salvation in 
the scriptures. He's intervened in the world in supernatural ways throughout human history. He hasn't remained aloof. In fact, he's even entered into his own creation as a man, as one of us, so that we might hear his voice and see his glory. But as Paul put it in Romans 1.18, fallen human beings, quote, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth, this truth which God has made so plain to us. Human beings, by nature, don't believe because they don't like what they see. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. This is the corruption of human nature. And then we have the hubris to turn around and demand that if God wants us to believe in Him, He's got to reveal Himself to us in a way that we prefer. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? And when he doesn't comply with our demand, we justify our unbelief by saying, well, he hasn't given us enough evidence. You know, the moral bankruptcy of this type of human behavior is going to be exposed on the day of judgment. In other words, that argument ain't going to fly on the day of judgment. And anyone here who might be going down that kind of road in their mind You really need to see it for what it is and repent before that day comes. But notice also the nature of the sign that these Jews were demanding from Jesus. You know, I've argued all the way through chapter 6 here that the events of the Exodus provide the backdrop, as it were, for this sixth chapter of John. We've already seen in this chapter Israelites in the wilderness a supernatural provision of bread, safe passage through the sea. And all of those things echo the events surrounding the Exodus. But now that connection is finally made explicit here, isn't it? As the Jews hear Jesus claiming to be sent from God and be able to give them food which endures to eternal life, and it seems to have made them think of the manna which Israel had eaten in the desert. And just as the Samaritan woman had said to Jesus back in verse, uh, chapter 4, you remember she said, Are you greater than our father Jacob? Well, it seems that these Jews seemed to be wondering whether Jesus was claiming to be greater than Moses. Such a claim in their minds would have to be proven. Proven by a miracle that was greater than the miracle of Moses giving their father's manna in the desert. We see Jesus' response in verses 32 and 33, and there it says, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So first he reminds them that it was God, not Moses, who had fed their ancestors with bread from heaven to keep them alive in the wilderness. But he went on to say that something greater is happening now. That God is now giving them a greater kind of bread from heaven, which would do far more than the manna had. Not just sustaining their physical lives, but giving them eternal life. And that not just to them, but to 
the world. And he describes this bread as a person, as he who comes down from heaven. He gives life to the world. Did you notice also that universal language? It's, we've seen it before. Chapter 1, verse 21. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Israel, the sin of the world. Chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved his old covenant people, for God so loved the world. It's unexpected that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so we read here, chapter 6, verse 33, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to Israel, the world. In other words, this salvation from God's judgment, this eternal life, which we know from chapter 17 is Nothing other than fellowship with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. This life which Jesus had come to bring was for any sinner who believed in Him. For the world, not just for the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. And out of this truth, you see, flows the missionary impulse of the church which John, when he wrote this gospel, had already begun to see happen through the ministry, for instance, of the Apostle Paul, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to people from every tongue and tribe and nation of the world, as John himself would see in his vision of Revelation chapter 5 and 6. It's intended for all people without distinction. This is why we support the cause of global missions and participate in it. There seems to have been some confusion, however, on the part of the Jews here about what Jesus meant because they reply saying, Sir, give us this bread always. So they still seem to be thinking that the bread is distinct from Jesus, that Jesus was offering to give them some kind of bread akin to the manna God had given to their fathers in the wilderness, but somehow better. And so they asked Jesus to give it to him, but Jesus had said the bread of God was a person. He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So in verse 35, we see that he finally just pulls back the curtain, lets all the light in, dispels all the confusion by clearly identifying himself as the bread that he'd been talking about. There he says, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And of course, finally here in chapter 6, we come to the first of seven so-called I am statements that are recorded in the Gospel of John. They each echo, it seems, Exodus 3.14, where God had identified himself to Moses in the burning bush event. As I am. In other words, they each imply in that echoing of Exodus 3.14 that the one who took those words upon his lips, I am. Jesus is Yahweh, the God of Israel, come into the world as a man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But they are each also, we see, attached to a predicate. 
And that predicate explains something about Jesus' identity and mission as the Messiah. So here, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And it indicates that as the Christ, the Son of God, he is the source of eternal life in fellowship with God. To spiritually starving, dead sinners who are headed to eternal death in hell. So, just like physical bread satisfies physical hunger and sustains physical life, well, Jesus here is claiming to satisfy spiritual hunger and to sustain spiritual life in a full and final way. You know, that inner longing for purpose, for satisfaction, which you can never fill with any of the things of this world. Jesus is saying he can fully and permanently quench, satisfy in your soul by bringing you to God, of whom it said in Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus, as the mediator between God and man, he's the true bread the bread of God, the bread of life, who alone can fully satisfy the hunger of the human soul, and that forever. But if Jesus is the bread, how does one eat him, as it were, so that you might enjoy, experience the eternal life which He provides as the bread of life. Well, he says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's a sort of Hebraism. You know that the Old Testament has that those parallelisms all the time. They say one thing in one line and repeat it in another, uh, and the two parallels are synonymous called synonymous parallelism well this is what this is that whoever comes to me and whoever believes in me are synonymously parallel they're roughly the same thing to come to Jesus is to believe in him as the bread of God to trust in him to give you eternal life out of his mercy because he's promised to do so so it's simple faith And nothing else. That's what it means to come to Jesus. It's that way that a poor, perishing sinner can receive from Jesus the gift of eternal life. That is, forgiveness of your sins, reconciliation to God, and loving fellowship with Him forever. Eternal life. You know, the offer there is for whoever will take it. So the question for you is, are you dying of spiritual starvation this morning? Are you estranged from God and headed to hell as the just punishment for your sin? If so, then the question is, why will you die? The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
You've heard the good news right from the lips of Jesus in this passage this morning. As we've read it, verses 47 through 48 of our text go on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. So the question is, will you take him at his word and come to him? That is, believe in him this morning, trusting him to give you eternal life, just as he's promised. What better time to do it than just right now? And believers, we who have come to Jesus and have received from him eternal life, let's remember how we received it. Not by working to earn it, like we do our physical bread. No, we can't obtain and we can't keep this fellowship with God that we enjoy by anything that we do. Nor can we sever it by committing a particular sin. It was given to us by Jesus as a free gift of grace. Simply on the basis of his work. What he did on our behalf. We sang it today. It was finished upon the cross. In fact, if you go back, we know that he came as the second Adam. To obey God's law perfectly as our representative. So that his righteousness could be counted to us. And he has then gone to the cross as an innocent man. But bearing the law's curses for our sin in our place when he died. He has finished all the work that was necessary for us to have eternal life. He's earned it for us. This is why he can say to sinners like you and me who deserve death, I am the bread of life. Our only work, so to speak, is to trust in him to give us life as he's promised. And and we have to always remember that whenever we find ourselves going back to those old paths of legalism, trusting in our own works to gain or to keep our acceptance from God, his love, his favor. Remember, believer, your works are just dry crumbs. They can't give you any any life. Christ, Christ alone is the bread of life. He alone can do it. So keep trusting in him to give you eternal life by his grace so that you cast off that sense of fear That comes from legalism and walk in the liberty of his love. What's fascinating, however, is that the Jews in our text, who had seen the miracle of Jesus multiplying the loaves, and then they'd heard him say, I am the bread of life, they did not believe in him. Instead, we hear Jesus say in verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. In fact, Later on in verses 41 and 42, you, say, he sees, you see that he says it again. He says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? When you hear the word grumbling, it's another striking echo, isn't it? Of those events surrounding the exodus. I told you the Exodus formed the backdrop to this chapter. 
The people of Israel had grumbled against God about the hardships of the desert, even though they had seen all the miracles he'd performed bringing them out of Egypt. And now these Jews, too, were grumbling against Jesus for claiming to be the bread of God who came down out of heaven, despite the miracle that they had seen him perform the day before. And just as the grumbling of the Exodus generation had revealed their hearts that they were unbelieving, so now the grumbling of these Jews revealed the unbelief in their hearts as well. But how could it be that they could prove so unbelieving despite all they had seen Jesus do? Well, it turns out that's exactly the issue that Jesus went on to address in the last part of our text, verses 37 through 46. And his explanation really has two parts to it. The first part is there in verses 37 through 40. There he said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father, that Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Now, to this point, Jesus had been saying, whoever believes in Him will receive eternal life. It was a statement of fact, but it also had an implicit invitation to it, right? In verses 37 through 40, Jesus reiterates those kinds of statements, right? Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But then he explains the divine purpose that lay behind that. He said that he had come into the world as the Messiah to accomplish the will of his Father. And the will of God the Father was this. Number one, that God had given him certain people, a group of people to save. Number two, all those people would come to him in faith. Number three, when they did, he would give them eternal life and he would keep them, hold on to them until the last day when he would raise them from the dead so that not a single one of those that God had given him would perish. Now those verses, they reflect two doctrines which are taught more broadly in the scripture. The first is the doctrine of unconditional election. You know, the scripture teaches in many places that God has chosen to save a particular group of people from before the creation of the world even. Here, they're described as those whom God the Father had given to the Son, Jesus. Elsewhere, they are described as those who are chosen or predestined for salvation. So, for instance, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, Paul famously says of God that, quote, He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Notice they're chosen before the foundation of the world, before they had done anything good or bad, and they were chosen according to the purpose of his will, not on the basis of anything that they would do to deserve it. Again, 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says that God, quote, saved us and called us to a holy calling, 
not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So this group of people whom God had chosen to save before the ages began and gave to the Son that he might give them eternal life are simply called the elect, the chosen ones throughout the New Testament. So you see it all the time if you have eyes to see it. Mark 13, 20. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Second Timothy 2.10, Paul says, Therefore I endure for the sake of I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So that's the first biblical doctrine that is reflected here in John 6, 37 through 40, the doctrine of unconditional election. The second is the doctrine of what might be called the perseverance of the saints. So the scripture teaches in many places that those whom God has chosen for salvation, once they have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, will never fall away. They will never lose their salvation, but God will keep them persevering in faith all the way to the end. So here in John, we see this when John said, Jesus says that he will lose none of those whom the Father has given him, but he will raise them up on the last day. Jesus would repeat this same truth later on in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 28, when he's speaking of the elect there as his sheep whom God had given him. And Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And this same truth is repeated elsewhere in the New Testament. You famously know the golden chain of Romans 8, 29-30, where Paul makes clear that those whom the Father has foreknown, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and whoever he predestines, he calls, justifies, and will glorify. So if you're part of this group, you're all the way through. You're going to be glorified in the end. Or 1 Peter 1, 1 through 5, Peter calls Christians elect exiles. And then he says that they are born again to a living hope in time and space. And then he says that by God's power, quote, they are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So they're chosen. They're born again by God's spirit. And then they're protected by God's power so that their faith will endure and they receive salvation at the end. So this is the second biblical doctrine reflected here in John 6, 37-40, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But this is not all Jesus has to say about why the Jews that he was speaking to didn't believe in him as the bread of life. He went on to explain further, verses 44-45. through 45. There he says, they're not believing in him. He says to them, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So first, Jesus explained why people don't come to him in faith. Despite all the evidence that they see for his identity, you know, like the miracle that they'd seen him perform. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, fallen human beings, they don't have the ability to come to Jesus on their own. Why? 
Well, because they're dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. They're slaves to various lusts and pleasures, Titus 3.3. 3. They're hostile to God, unable to submit to his law, Romans 8.7. Paul just makes it very clear and plain in Romans 3.9-12. He, he's quoting from Psalm 14 and he says this, All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So if we're left to ourselves, no one would believe in Jesus because of their sinful nature is in bondage to sin. So God must first draw them to Jesus if they're ever going to come. And he describes this as being taught of God or learning from the Father. And he even quotes from a redemption oracle, from the prophecies of Isaiah 54, where the prophet is describing the days to come when God will save his people, and he says, all of them will be taught of God. This is nothing other than the new covenant blessing of regeneration of heart. It's what Jeremiah described as having the law of God written on your heart, Jeremiah 31. It's what Ezekiel talked about when he said, God will take out your heart of stone and give you a new heart. And he'll put his spirit within you and cause you to walk in his commands. It's what Jesus called being born again of the spirit in John 3. Paul described it as the washing of regeneration by the spirit, Titus 3.5. And it's this inner regeneration of heart by the Spirit that enables us to understand and believe the gospel. Indeed, it will inevitably result in saving faith. As Jesus puts it in verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, in this way, Jesus says teaching here in John 6, 44 and 45, it reflects a third doctrine of the scripture that's sometimes called irresistible grace. It simply means that while unregenerate sinners can and will refuse to believe the gospel when they hear it, despite all the evidence, God regenerates the hearts of those whom he has given to the Son so that when they hear the gospel, they will come to Jesus in faith and be saved. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How do we know that God has chosen you for salvation? Because when we preached the gospel to you, it didn't just bounce off your ears. You were convicted of its truth. Together, all these truths which Jesus is teaching here in verses 37 to 46, they serve to explain the sovereign purpose and activity of God behind how people respond to him. If they believe in him, it's because God has chosen them for salvation and drawn them to him in faith. And he will certainly keep them in faith until he raises them on the last day so that none of them will be lost. And by implication, you see, if like these Jews... They do not believe in him. It's because God has not given them to the Son or drawn them to him, but has simply left them in their rebellious state. In fact, Jesus would say to a different group of Jews who were also refusing to 
believe in him later on in chapter 10, verses 25 and 26. He says, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. My miracles testify to my identity. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. But why did Jesus say these things to the Jews in this passage? I mean, what what purpose was it accomplishing to tell them all this? I mean, surely it wasn't to discourage them from coming to him in faith, right? No one should read this passage and think, well, I don't know if Jesus will save me when I ask him to because I'm not sure if I'm one of those whom God has chosen. No, Jesus dispelled this. Verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You can't know whether you're one of those whom God has given to the Son, but you can know if you come to Jesus in faith, He'll not reject you. He'll give you eternal life. So just trust him and do what he, to do what he's promised. I think the reason that Jesus taught these things to the Jews who were rejecting them, and to us as readers, is for one main reason. To confront human pride. And to cultivate humility before God. He's reminding us here that by nature, all men are blind and deaf beggars before God. We have ears, but we can't hear his word. We have eyes, but we can't see his truth. And that means we are completely shut up to his mercy to disclose himself to us, which he has graciously done in Jesus Christ, and then to teach us the significance of it, to illumine our minds to understand it, to soften our hearts by his spirit to respond in faith. When Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, it was not to engender resignation to fatalism, but to cultivate a dependent humility before God as human beings, realizing we can never believe unless he grants it to us. As Paul so famously put it, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So believer, praise and thank God in Jesus Christ. Unbeliever, humble yourself before God in desperation, asking him to open your blind eyes, unstop your deaf ears, that you might be drawn to Jesus. So the people in the first century to whom the Gospel of John was written They understood the importance of getting bread every day to sustain their life. What Jesus reveals both to them and to us in this passage is that he is able to satisfy a need that we have, which is deeper and more profound than the hunger of our physical bodies. He is the bread of life who has come from heaven to give eternal life to the souls of every man, woman, and child who will simply believe and trust in him. As he put it in verses 47 through 48, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. So all who feed on Jesus by faith will in the truest and deepest sense never be hungry again.